On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Soleil. And Soleil was married to a financial abuser who used their mental health issues at their convenience. It's a story of pathologically lying, smear campaigns, cognitive dissonance, reactive abuse, and caretaking. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Soleil. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I am great. And for those that don't know that uh, Soleil is uh, French for for sun. So, you know, we're we're Canadians here. We are supposed to be bilingual. What? And we're both in the same city, so this is, um, you know, interesting, but we're not together in the same place. But I just want to thank you for, for being here today, and today you're going to share your story, and you were in a long-term relationship with a charismatic, covert narcissist, and you've been through a lot. So, uh, you know, thank you for being here. And now, without further ado, Soleil, the floor is now yours. (laughs) Okay. So I thought, I thought the best way to tell my story was to kind of go through it, um, as I experienced it, uh, not knowing that I was in a relationship with a narcissist, but knowing that something was wrong. All right, so when I met my ex-husband, Jonathan, I, I was actually, I was sort of in a transitional period of my life. I had started an undergraduate degree, and then I didn't know what I was going to do with it, so I left university without finishing it. I, um, then I went to chef school for a couple of years, and then I worked as a chef for a number of years. And, um, at the time I met my ex-husband, I was engaged to somebody else, uh, who was a great guy, lovely, lovely guy. Um, and he had taken a job in Bermuda, um, for a few years, but I couldn't go with him because I had transferred credits already and I needed to stay and finish school. So I got, so, so I had stopped being a chef, right? I was still a chef and going to school part-time. Then I left cooking, went to school full-time to finish up my degree and go to teacher's college, which at the time was a one-year program while he was in Bermuda. So this was the summer. So I met my ex-husband the summer before I started teacher's college. Um, I had uh, acquired all the teaching experience that I needed under my belt. I knew I had already gotten into teacher's college, so I just wanted kind of a fun job. Uh, so I took a job as a chef cooking on a sailboat that did harbor cruises in the city um, I'm from, that were in Toronto. Uh, and my, I was having doubts about my engagement. I wasn't, I wasn't certain that I wanted to marry this person anymore. Um, and, uh, and so that was part of the reason I stayed in Toronto as well, instead of going to Bermuda for the summer. I also didn't want to be dependent on somebody and I, and I couldn't have worked there. I'm, I'm pretty resilient and independent. So that was important to me. 
Um, so I was cooking on this boat for the summer and my ex-husband's company uh, booked the ship to do a social cruise. And that was where we met. So we crossed paths um, and then he was having everybody back. To, I, I met him. He wasn't attra- wasn't really attractive, um, but uh, kind eyes. I, one of the things that I love in a person is is uh, a twinkle in their eye. Like I, I don't think I could live with somebody who didn't have that. That's so he had a twinkle in his eye. Um, was funny, intelligent, very kind, um, very charming, very charming, and uh, knew everybody. Everybody seemed to, on the boat seemed to like him and stuff. Anyway, so he had a. He had a party afterwards. He was having everybody over to his house after the cruise. And he invited me. I'd finished my shift and I was just socializing with the guests. And he had invited me to this party. And I said, sure, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. Um, But then when it came time to go, none of my coworkers were in the mood to go. I didn't want to go on my own, so I didn't bother. But I'm, I'm like a very empathic, kind person. And I didn't want to hurt his feelings. So I kind of felt like I owed an apology to say, oh, I really hadn't, like, I wasn't just blowing you off. I had intended to come. And then my friends just failed on me. So I think I called, I think I made a call um, from a pay phone. Like, I don't think I used my phone. I can't remember. Anyway, so then to find me again, so he made, he made up some excuse to go back to the boat looking for a pair of sunglasses. Uh, it was very intentional. I that, wasn't that there. That old trick. Yeah, that old trick. So I wasn't there. Uh, perhaps he'd, I, 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 perhaps he'd hoped I was, but I wasn't. And so he planted a seed with a coworker of mine by asking about me. Oh, who was that? Uh, I think her name was Soleil. Like she was really cute. She must be dating somebody or what, you know, whatever. And knowing that this coworker, coworker would tell me, which he did, um, and then there was one more thing. It was, I must have called him another time, and I must have used my cell phone. I made a conscious decision not to leave my phone number. Uh, I mean, I, he, he had tweaked some interest in me, but I was engaged, and I didn't seem appropriate. So I didn't leave my phone number, but he, at that time, you could do star 69 and get the person's phone number. So he did that, got my phone number, and then phoned me. And... Uh, we just chatted. I don't think anything came of it, but I knew where he lived because I had been intending to go to this party, like after the social cruise or whatever. So um, it was late in the summer and I was moving out of the city to go to teacher's college. And I just like in the back of my mind that you just sort of had, I sort of had this, what if, like maybe, I don't know, you know, like, so I dropped by his house and uh, we either went on a date that very day or the next day. I think it might've been that very day. We went on a date. Um, he was an airline pilot. And so our first date lasted like 24 hours because he was on call. He got called in to fly a plane to, he's a regional pilot. He got called in to fly a plane to Columbus, Ohio. And he invited me along. Do you want to come? And I said, sure. And, uh, so we went to Columbus, you know, had a nice time and you know, went out for drinks with his uh, first officer. And 
and we're an item from that point on, you know. That's so, an interesting first date. Yeah. <laughs> to be, yeah. you know, not, you know, some people say, you know, our first date, uh, he took me to Paris. He took me here, uh, you know. <laughs> Ohio. He took you to Columbus, but at I the know. same, but at the same time, he flew the plane. Yeah, he flew the plane. Yeah, that was kind of which cool. for you was, has to be very attractive. Very cool. In fact, I remember being on the flight. You just reminded me of this. I remember being on the flight, and I would have been in my mid thirties, mid thirties, I think. But I, I looked. I've always looked very young for my age, and so. Um, I remember chatting with an older woman who was sitting in the seat next to me and, and it came up that my, that I was, um, I'm sure I said he was my boyfriend because I wouldn't have wanted to tell this older lady that it was my first date and I was going on this overnight to Columbus, but I told her that, um, you know, my date was flying the plane or whatever. And she said, she looked kind of concerned and she said, Ooh, you must be very young. that was weird anyway so we had this so we had this great date and so then I moved to um a different city for school about uh what is about a what a four or five hour I guess a five hour drive from Toronto um but as a pilot you know it was easy for him to get there pretty easily uh and so he came to visit me all the time like he would surprise me and it and you know, so we were hours away. And even on a flight, it would take a few hours because you have to get to the airport and whatever. So he would come and visit me um, almost every weekend. And, uh, you know, like all the usual love bombing stuff, like gifts and flowers, always sending me flowers, always bringing me gifts. Um, we traveled, you know, when I had time off, we would travel and he took me on flights to like Hawaii and Mexico and we went to Turkey and Barbados and I love to travel. So I just like, couldn't believe my luck. Like how, like how lucky could I be that I should meet a pilot, right. And where, who, who has flight benefits so I can fly very cheaply. So, um, for, so for you, a lover of travel, this guy's, you know, uh, you love the fact that he's a pilot. It, that's very attractive to you. You're now not just going to Columbus. You're going to exotic places as well. Yeah. Yeah. At this point, do you think like I, I, I hit the lottery here? Like this is totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. Oh, like I want, I can't believe how, like serendipity, like how, you know, like all the stars were aligned. It was like, Oh my God. Is there anything right. along the lines of that's going in your head where you might be thinking everybody loves this guy? Oh yeah. He chose me. Yeah, and he was um I think he was in his he was almost 40 at that point. He's a little bit older than me. Uh and he was so taken with me, you know. And so from, you know, the perspective his perspective that he was telling me was also, oh my God, I've waited my whole life for you, right? Like, I just thought I wasn't going to get married at this point. And, and here you are, you know, I haven't met anybody until you and you're it kind of thing. Um, so there were a lot of red, lot of red flags, <laughs> but 
and I didn't, I didn't know they were red flags. I thought they were weird. Um, but as I said, I was in sort of a transitional period in my life. And so, uh, I went along with a lot of things that maybe I wouldn't have, you know, because I, I'd moved to a different city. Um, I then ended my engagement. So that part of my life was in upheaval. Um, I had moved to another city. And then when I finished, I came back to Toronto uh, without a place to live, without a job. I had to find a job. Um, and here's this wonderful person I'm now seeing who owns a house um, and has asked me to move in with him after like, I don't know, two or three months of dating. So, so you know, we dated for a couple of weeks and I had a key to his house. Um, a month after we started dating, he said to me, because uh, I really wanted kids, and that was part of the reason I was changing careers, because it's pretty hard to be a chef and uh, raise children, because you're working nights and weekends and holidays, and so I wanted a more stable career so that I could have children. And after about a month of dating, he said, so he also had never wanted children. He never wanted, there were, there's a history of mental health issues in his family, which I'll get into later, Um which I think was part of it. And he, he never wanted children. But after a month of dating, he said, you know, if you got pregnant, I would be okay with it. I, you know, I would be okay with it. And uh, I thought, yeah, that's, you know, really sweet. And at the same time, he was really pressuring me to meet my family early on. And I wasn't keen to introduce him because I had just ended this engagement and my, and my father in particular was not happy about it. So I wasn't, I wasn't in a position where I wanted to be bringing somebody new into the picture. Um, so, oh, and beyond weird, beyond weird. After about four months of dating, his dad passed away. Um, he, when they were writing the obituary to go in the paper, uh, his mother was putting it in the paper um, Jonathan insisted on having me named as his partner in the obituary. And this was after how long? Four months. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. a big red flag. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, it's not that I didn't think it was weird. I did. Uh, but being in the state that I was head over heels and really this, you know, uh, Prince Charming had come to, you know, give me the life that I always wanted and more. Um, I interpret it as I interpreted it as commitment to me, you know, like, oh, he really does mean this or whatever. Right. Then after about maybe five months of dating, I got pregnant accidentally. And I wasn't, I wasn't as much as I wanted kids. It wasn't, uh, ideal because I had to finish school. I couldn't, I needed to finish my program. I, I, and I wasn't sure about it, but when I told Jonathan, he was elated, like so excited about it. And he brought me a gift. Um, he bought me the book, what to expect when you're expecting. And he brought me flowers, two roses and a carnation. And he said this, it, it signified our new family. Um, this was, I think, on a visit to Toronto. And then probably the next weekend, he flew to um, visit me in the other city. 
and uh, he stayed overnight. And the next morning, he looked very distraught. Uh, he hadn't slept at all. Told me he hadn't slept at all, and uh, seemed very um, anxious, distraught, depressed. And told me he couldn't go through with it, the pregnancy. He 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 couldn't do it, and uh, and emotionally manipulated me into having an abortion. Because you know, so I felt very manipulated. You know, he had told me one thing, then he didn't like. So already his actions, his words were not consistent with his actions. Um, but. I, after I found out I was pregnant and he was in support of it, I introduced him to my family because I thought, okay, we're having a child together. I better introduce, (laughs) I better introduce this person to my family ASAP. After doing that, he coerced me into having an abortion. It was a tough, it was a tough time. And he said, you know, I don't know if I'm, I I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to do this. And I remember, uh, it had to have been after that, that we went to Turkey because I remember, I remember him saying to me when we were in Turkey, because um, he was still a little bit depressed, I guess, um, saying to me, you know, I really, I really want you. He said, if I could have whatever I wanted, he said, I would, I, I want you, uh, but no children. And he said, but I know that that's not an option. You know, I think I was very confused. Um, I can't. I can't really remember if I ever considered the possibility of of um, staying with him and not having children. It was pretty important to me, so I don't, I don't, I don't really, I don't really remember. But we just kind of plugged along after that because everything else was so good, and we were already invested. You know, I was already invested, so um, yeah. And and so another thing that happened, and so I didn't, I didn't. I didn't think of this as love bombing, but recently I watched um, a video about narcissism and it talked about uh, how love bombing can look different when, when the narcissist is a vulnerable narcissist. It can look much more like, um, woe is me and you feel sorry for them and you want to help them. And so there was some of that as well, because I remember when we were dating there, there was a particular, um, night he took me out to dinner and it was he there was this big production because he um made a big deal about telling me about his history his family history of mental illness so his father left uh their home when my ex-husband was about six or seven and his dad lived in assisted various incarnations of assisted living facilities for the rest of his life um, he had various diagnoses, um, bipolar disorder. Um, I, I think he was diagnosed with schizophrenia at some point. I don't think he had it, but it was a long time ago. And I, and I, you know, there was a lot of ambiguity about mental health issues. So he was on, you know, a plethora of medications and, um, yeah, and just wasn't well. And so when he told me this, he was, he, he came off as being really concerned that he would lose me, uh, whether that was true or not i don't know but it wasn't a big deal to me i said you know it's so 
there's a history. I could have, you know, we'll deal with it. Um, there's lots of, there's much more support for mental health issues now. Uh, and I said, and it's not your fault. It's no different than you being born with blue eyes. It's, you know, it's not, it doesn't say anything about you. You can't help it. And how big of a role does that play, uh, I guess, going forward as far as um, letting things slide or, or caretaking? And then specifically at this time, uh, do you become more of a, a caretaker to his emotions and be like, I want to be here for this person? Yeah, I, w- I would say that I did. Um, and I had during during the time we were dating, he did experience some depressive episodes. He he would have very severe uh, depressive episodes where he'd be bedridden for like a month at a time. Um, and I would just, you know, do my best to support him. But, you know, when we had kids and when I worked, I just, it was really depressing. And you kind of feel guilty feeling, you know, kind of disgruntled that your partner's depressed, but it is, but it's hard, right? You're, you know, doing everything on your own and it's lonely and it, and it's, it is depressing for you as well. So, and I think it, I think it's, um, it almost, I don't know if this was his intention when he told me this, told me or not, but it almost set a precedent, right? Like, like you knew my family history, you knew that I had issues, you knew that I suffered from depression. And, and so, Something he would say to me often throughout our marriage when when I would question things he did or I'd be upset about something, he would he would say to me, you knew who I was when you married me <laughs> like that. So it, it, it excused him of any responsibility for his behavior because you knew what you were getting. You know, that was kind of what he was saying. So our marriage, our whole relationship was very one sided where. I did all the housework I, inside and out. I managed our finances. I was primary caregiver to our kids and I worked full time. Um, and I supported him and I, and I, and I got him to doctors and I found him therapists and support groups, but he refused to follow through with any, any, like any, any time, any time, any sort of work or effort was required of him. Uh, he wouldn't do it. He wasn't, he wasn't willing to do it. So it was very one-sided in that sense. Um, so this, the, the pattern, the pattern of when I got pregnant, he supported it. So he, so he lied, said he'd be okay with us having a baby. Then I got pregnant. He pretended he was elated and then he got all depressed to get out of it. This would be a pattern. So it was early on in the relationship, so I didn't see it. So there, so he had this, he had this really big pattern of making a grand promise, a grand gesture of some sort, um, then not delivering on it, uh, and using depression as a way to get out of it. Uh, his his depression was genuine. I'm not I'm not saying that it wasn't. So, and it served a couple of purposes for him, right? It would get, it would, um, it would deflect responsibility for something he had done because when he was in this state, what could I do but forgive him, right? When he was so down that he couldn't get out of, that he couldn't lift his head, he was so depressed. I very quickly, you know, forgot about 
the hundred thousand dollars he borrowed behind my back or whatever he did. Um, but it also seemed to get him out of situations. It also seemed to be prompted sometimes by having, by him having done something bad to me as well, almost like a subconscious guilt coming to the surface. And would you even, would you even know that those things happened yet? No. So that was like a telltale sign eventually for you that something might've gone on that he's already feeling guilty about. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. So this was the, this was a pattern that I would see over and over again, where he offers something renege on the offer and then fall into a depression to get out of it or whatever. You know, he'd say, Oh, I'm depressed because I, I'm afraid I'm going to lose you or whatever. Right. And then whatever. So there were some other red flags that, uh, stood out that I just ignored when we were dating. He told me about some of his old girlfriends and in particular, he told me about this ex-girlfriend he'd had and she, they met at a party and she was coming to do like a work exchange in Toronto. And so the story he gave me, and now of course I doubt everything that he's told me because I know that he lies pathologically. But what he told me was that she was coming to work to do this work exchange. And so he said, oh, well, you could stay with me. You know, it's just short term. You can stay with me while you're doing it. And then she just moved in. But he had offered her a place to stay, but then she just moved in. So that was the story that he gave me. But I suspect now that he probably did ask her to move in. So he talked about this girl, like, in such a mean way. And he told me that uh, his friends started calling her the beast, and they joked about her having a 666 on her head somewhere. Um, so he spoke, he spoke horribly about her. But, you know, you're hearing this and it's uncomfortable and you just kind of laugh it off. Um, until I discovered that in his house he had a bunch of cards and gifts from her. And I thought, well, that's kind of strange because this relationship was like long ago. And then I discovered a card and a gift, a book that she'd written in that were given to him very, very recently. So I brought them to his attention and then he had to come clean. He had reconnected with her and had um, resumed a sexual relationship with her right up until he met me. Um, And coincidentally, she lived in the same city where I'd been going to school. So that was weird. I don't know. I was, you know, anyway, I kind of brushed it aside. I thought it was weird and I thought it was really awful. I thought, what an, like, I really thought, what an awful person to be (laughs) saying this about somebody that you're actually, you know, in an ongoing sort of relationship with. So that was weird. So I finished school. I don't have anywhere to live. He's asked me to live, to move in with him. Uh, I'm from Toronto. I want to go back to Toronto. My parents live in a different city, so it's not easy for me to just stay with them. I don't want to be where they are. Uh, so he rents a U-Haul truck and drives to, comes to Ottawa, helps me load up my stuff, and we drive it to his house in Toronto. And then shortly after that, I guess he got a little bit of an inheritance because I, yeah, I would have been living with him. He got a little bit of inheritance of an inheritance from his father who had passed away. It was only like $5,000 or something. But right around the same time, 
the lease on my car had come up and I, and I really wanted to buy it out. Uh, but it was, it was $10,000. And I think I'd been a student, so I didn't, you know, I didn't have any money. I wasn't, I had no income, but I had about $5,000 in an RSP. Um, so I had 5,000, but I needed another five. And, and again, he makes this grand gesture. Well, we're planning a life together. You're moving in with me. This is going to be, you know, our car. Uh, I want you to, I want, I'm, I'm offering you the $5,000 to help you buy out your car. Same pattern repeats itself. He regrets making the offer, falls into a depression, you know, like whatever. So this, this was the first like really serious depressive episode that I saw. Um, I don't know when, where I was when this happened, but he was bedridden. Maybe I was staying with friends. He was bedridden and his mother called to check on him and he wasn't answering his phone. So she drove downtown and she was elderly she drove downtown to check on him and she found him. She had a key to his house, let herself in, found him in bed with, you know, those elect, those um, elastic exercise bands. Mm-hmm. They're very stretchy. He had it kind of loosely wrapped around his neck, like as though, as though he was attempting suicide, but you wouldn't be able to, you, you wouldn't be able to strangle yourself with those electric bands, with those electric, those elastic bands, because they're stretchy, right? So it was, it was so clearly a show um, and a cry for attention. So his mom called the ambulance. They took him to the hospital he, it, for observation. Then when he got out, he went with his mother to her house. Um, and she, uh, she babysat him. She didn't like get him to see a therapist or anything. And, and so I did those things. And I, so I, you know, took him to doctors, some doctor's appointments, and I tried to get him out of the house uh, because part of cognitive behavioral therapy is, is the behavior, right? Like knowing, or, uh, like if you behave like things are normal, then things will return, will feel more normal. And in turn, cognitively, you'll feel better. Is that right? And so I tried to help as much as I could with that. And then he just had to sleep it out. Um, he went to the doctor, got some stuff to help him, some medication to help him sleep. And then eventually, you know, as is cyclical with him, he goes through the depression and then he came back home. And so I, I think I bought some new sheets and kind of redecorated his bedroom a little bit so that it would be cheery when he came back, because this is where it had happened. Um, and uh, the $5,000 that he had offered me and then took back my, my mother gave me to buy out my car. (laughs) Um, so we got engaged and then about a year. Yeah. And then we got married the next summer. So that would have been my first year of teaching. Um, teaching is when you start teaching, it's kind of sink or swim. It's very, very overwhelming. And so I was really busy, really overwhelmed, worked really long days and and planned the wedding. So it wasn't until after we got married that the develop, and I think that's pretty normal, right? Like once you're fully in there, after we got married, that was when the devaluation, you know, really started to happen. And it, and it started very subtly, you know, it would be like snide little comments here and there. And, you know, there was always plausible deniability. Oh, I was just joking. Oh, you're too sensitive. All of that kind of thing, you know, um, 
he would uh, start an he would start an argument and then you know get the last word and then he'd storm out. So you're left you know worried that he's gone. Is he coming back or whatever? Um, and this is when it started to become really really obvious that he would do anything for a stranger. Like he he had this great public persona where. He would do anything for you, you know, like he would give you the shirt off of his bat. He would help a stranger move a refrigerator up, you know, 10 flights of stairs, but he wouldn't do the smallest thing for me. So that was the first time where I was like, there's like, this is really weird and I don't understand it. And when that happens, it makes you wonder what's wrong with you. You know, there was like a hierarchy of who he prioritized. So, you know, his friends always came before us and and I didn't, I didn't see that so much as a prioritization as I just thought, like, wow, I must be a really awful person because he's so wonderful to everybody else, so awful to me. Like, what, what is it about me? And so you don't want to talk about it because you're embarrassed, right? You think it's something about you. And then the other thing I noticed was that he really prioritized his, his family. So his mother came above everybody, and he had a niece. Um, who was kind of the golden child of the whole family. So they always took priority. And when I was pregnant with our first child, I was about eight months pregnant. I made the mistake of like talking to him about this and he blew up at me and he was furious. And he said, uh, don't make me choose between you and my mother because you'll lose. So you're just like, what is going on here? Um, and so there was lots of that sort of behavior, lots of gaslighting. It started off as, you know, smaller things where he would lie to me or say a, a very, a very common thing he did was he would make, we would agree to something and then he would break the agreement. Um, or he would say, I never said that. Or he would tell me that I said things that I knew I hadn't said. There were times when he would completely fabricate um, narratives that, that were like absolutely not true. And I'd be left going, I, like, I'd be left thinking, where the hell did that even come from? And it would be so, it would be such an insidious, such a, such a, an innocuous thing. You'd, you'd think, why would anybody even make up a story about that? Like some of it was just so ridiculous. It was just like, just made you crazy because you didn't, you never knew what was going on and you couldn't make sense of anything. And, I was exhausted and I was, you know, I was working and I was working at home and, and, and whatnot. Um, so after we'd been married a year, we had our first child and, um, and, and why did you guys decide to have a baby at this point? Um, like how did you get him to agree after the last time? We, you know what, before we got married, after we, after we got engaged and before we got married, we had, he had agreed, um, that we, that we, we had both agreed that we wanted children. He was on board with it at that point. Um, but my parents were fairly traditional. My father, very traditional. And I, and I said, well, if we're getting married anyway, let's wait until we get married to have a child and I got pregnant pretty much right away. Were you expecting a freak out that this was going to happen again or was that even uh, in your mind? No, I wasn't. Okay. I wasn't. 
No. All right. Um, he was he was supportive of it at this point. And for the most part, things were good, right? And I think the other thing, too, is that, like, in a situation like this where you're telling all the bad stuff, people are listening and going, well, why did you stay? Why did, well, it wasn't all like this, right? Like, it was, it was great. When it was great, it was awesome. When it was fun, it was really fun. And when it was good, it was great. But when it was, when it was bad, it was awful, right? It was, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. And I would, cry, you know, like, I remember crying for days on end. It was so awful. But it's not like that all the time, you know? And so, okay, so we had our first child. And um, he, right around the time, oh, so interesting that you should ask that, actually, because he was fine and he was on board with having a baby. But when I had our first child, he, it set off a depressive episode. So he went into this, he went into this very serious um, depression. So here I am with a new baby. I'm learning how to be a new mom and I'm totally on my own. And at the same time, we had bought a property that with a house with a, an old like little crappy little house on it that we were tearing down and we were embarking on a house build. And so that made him anxious. And so I volunteered to take over that, you know. And so here I am. I wasn't working because I was um, on my maternity leave, but I've got a husband who's bedridden with depression. I've got a brand new baby. I'm learning to breastfeed and be a mother for the first time and um, and getting ready to build a house, like to start planning to build a house. So it was a lot on my plate, but I was like, you know, whatever. It is what it is. And you just kind of get on with it. Um, so after, after this, he would have sort of, probably on average, he'd have one of these depressive episodes about one a year. And, and this was still early on in our marriage. So I hadn't, I hadn't recognized any pattern to it yet. Um, I did later, but, but early on, I, I didn't really see the pattern of when it happened. Um, I think that adding a kid to the picture uh, made things worse. It was more, you know, responsibility required of him that he couldn't deliver on and that I expected of him. It divided my attention. Um, and, you know, yeah, you're, you're just not as, you're just not as free to do the things you were when you were single, you know? So, and then it also brought, it also brought another angle in to the manipulation by this little, you know, this little person in our lives that, you know, I, I feel responsible for, but he doesn't necessarily or not as I think looking back, I think the I think the, re, I think he thought he loved me. I do. I do think he thought he loved me. And I think in his own way, he did. I don't think that's a very healthy kind of love because I think what, I think what our children and I brought to him was some, uh, Normalcy is not the right word, but I think we made him look good in certain circumstances, right? When he needed us, when he needed us to make him look good, he was awesome. And he, he loved to show us off, you know, here's my beautiful wife, here are my precocious children. Uh, but behind the scenes, he couldn't be bothered. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't interested. And so, the, so very much the pattern or like our, our normal existence was he 
he came and went as he pleased. He, he continued to live like he was a, a bachelor, doing exactly, living exactly the life he lived before. Uh, we never knew, like, he was away for work half the time. And then when he was home, I never knew where he was. Um, he was, he always disappeared. He'd be gone for hours. If I called, he'd be really ambiguous about where he was because um, he was probably at the bar or, you know, God knows where. Um, and then if he didn't want to be found, he just didn't answer. He just ignored. And that happened, as you know, as my children, as our children got older, he would ignore their calls as well when he didn't want to be found. Yeah. And so and a lot of passive aggressive or a lot of passive aggression. So all this stuff was going on. Like I can look back and I can see it. I can, I can see it so clearly now, but at the time I didn't understand because he, it was so covert. It was so passive aggressive and he lied about it. Right. It was always, he always maintained plausible deniability. So his intentions, he always lied about his intentions, right? I was just joking or, um, he would lie by omission or he would just not do something. Um, and so that was his quiet, you know, he didn't want to be seen as the bad person who was like, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. He just wouldn't do it. <laughs> right. And so it was very passive aggressive. He was still refusing to do it. He just wasn't coming out and, and saying it. So I can see that now, but at the time it was just confusing and it was so infuriating. You know, the other thing he started to do was he would, so this whole time he was smearing me behind my back and I, and I had no idea. So he's, my ex-husband is larger than life and, and a, and a big storyteller. Right. And, and he's known, you know, among our friends and family as, as being this great storyteller. And he would often say, uh, you know, lots of exaggeration. And he would say, oh, there's no place for the truth in a good story. And he was a great, like great storyteller. Um, so when there were little inconsistencies or, or people behaved in strange ways towards me, I thought, well, I, I'm sure he's recounted some events and he's made me out to be a little bit worse than I was or whatever. But I didn't realize that it was to the extent that it was. But I realize now that, that from the beginning of our marriage, he was orchestrating this whole narrative to make me out to be um, an awful person. So, but his narrative changed depending on who he was speaking to. So to his family and to his personal friends, he could tell them whatever he wanted because he knew that they wouldn't check in with me, right? So I was, I was a bitch. I was a shrew. I was cheap. I wouldn't let him spend his own money. I was controlling. I was mean. I was all of this stuff, right? Then to our mutual friends who he knew would speak to me, he would uh, give a more balanced version, maybe, but still make himself out to be more of the victim than the villain. Like, he could never be the villain. He was always the hero or the, or the victim of every situation. So, but he would be a little bit more truthful. So there was always a grain of truth. So that if they did talk to me, um, it wouldn't be so far-fetched what he had told them. And then with my family and my close friends, who he knew I would tell everything to, 
uh, he sang my praises. So he, so it really, he was so manipulative depending on who he spoke to. So that was an interesting thing. So at this point of your marriage, how far mm-hmm. in are we? So I guess we are married about three years. Okay. So three years, you have gaslighting, you have all these different types of manipulation tactics going on. Uh, I don't know if you know that you're actually being smeared at this point, but you're, you, you've no. noticed a lot of things uh, that aren't normal. Are you happy in your marriage at this point? How are you feeling about everything? Do you even know anything is wrong? No, no, I don't think I did. I think I thought, I mean, these little things were happening, but, um, you know, people say marriage is hard. Um, and, and, you know, couples fight over finances and, and, uh, couples report their, the least satisfaction in their marriages after their children are born, you know, or when their children are young. So it all, it, it's all still fitting within a frame of normal for me, I think. Right. Um, and, and I'm no shrinking violet. Right. So when he would create conflict with me, I would stand up for myself. I wasn't, I wasn't just like cowering in a corner. I argued back. Right. And, and, and so I took on some responsibility for that. And I felt like I was partly to blame. And I, and so I know he would say to his friends, well, yeah, I gave her shit for this, but she gave as good as she got. But it, I, I understand now that I, I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't start the fights. I was trying to be logical and follow his train of thought, which of course was, you know, word salady and all over the place as he tried to confuse me from what the issue was. Um, it was reactive abuse. Right. And so more and more he, he would orchestrate these situations to make me react in the way he was telling people I was right. So I'm, I'm a very outgoing person. I'm very confident. Uh, I'm very sociable, but he would tell people that, um, I wasn't, that I was really like, um, that I hated people and I didn't like being around other people because he would create these scenarios where, you know, I would, I couldn't, so for instance, because he was away for work so much of the time, when we had very young children, I, I had to pick them up from daycare and come straight home from work, right? I couldn't, I couldn't do any work beyond my work day. So when he was off and could supervise the kids, I would stay at work until like 10 o'clock to make up for the time. And, and I would come home expecting, you know, exhausted from a long day. I would come home expecting my children to be in bed and a calm household. And I would arrive home and my house would be full of people and my kids would be awake. <laughs> and I'd be like, why are the kids not in bed? And, what are, and he would know that it would piss me off. And so then I would be angry and, and I'm not one, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and I'm, what you see is what you get. I'm not very good at hiding my feelings. So then all of our friends and neighbors would be like, wow, she is kind of a bitch, <laughs> you know, 
But I was just, I was tired. And he totally knew that I would react in this way and had completely set me up. So it, it was so strange. So, so then we had this house built. Um, it was just up the street from where we were living already. Um, big process. And when you're building a house, it's different than a mortgage because you have to get like building loans and stuff like that. But I was at home with a newborn and a two-year-old. And so I trusted my spouse to take care of that end of things. I didn't, I didn't know at the time what a horrible mistake that was. He was my spouse. I thought you're supposed to trust your spouse. You have joint accounts and it's mutual. And until we went into the bank to change these building loans into a, like a traditional residential mortgage. Um, and my, and our banker uh, revealed that my ex-husband had borrowed $155,000 more than we had agreed to um, without my consent, without telling me. He had been having me sign forms. He forged my signature, I found out recently, because I looked at this paperwork. And, and, and where did that money go? You know, he likes to be the big guy. He likes to be popular. He's, he likes to be, likes to show off as being generous. So, you know, every Friday he would take all the workmen out for lunch. He wasn't keeping track. He's very disorganized. So he wasn't keeping track of the budget and where the money was going. Um, I had no idea because I was at home with our kids. I could, I could barely get down the street to see the house because I was just always stuck at home. And, um, he was buying tools, you know, <laughs> he just likes to spend money. Like I, I didn't, I didn't know at the time and I'm not even sure now where all the money went. I just know that he likes to spend money. And so probably a lot of that money went into a lot of frivolous stuff that I just never saw. And I'm, and I'm, I was raised in a household where like, we're so financially responsible. I don't buy things until I have the money to pay for it. Like I, I'm really responsible. So that became a real sore point. And, and it also became something he used against me. He also weaponized that knowing that that's what bothered me. This happened again and again, not, not always such a large sum of money, but he would take out secret credit cards. So, so, and hide them from me. Um, and so at one point I, uh, he was also like a, he was really disorganized, really messy and a, and a crazy hoarder. So he slept in our spare room because he had weird hours and I wanted the boy, I wanted the kids to sleep with me and he didn't like that. So he moved into the spare room and, and would have papers all over the floor. So in cleaning up these papers, I would discover, you know, one credit card statement, two credit card statements, three credit card statements. Other times I would, I would find, you know, a loan document um, where he had borrowed $5,000. So, you know, at one point he had taken out three credit cards and there was like 20,000 on this one, you know, 10,000 on this one, 15 on this one. This was ongoing. Like he always did this. He, he kept, he used my credit card. He kept a picture of my credit card on his phone and would use my credit card all the time. So, so it would happen again and again and again. And then, and then the same kind of cycle where he would um, fall into a depression and be 
say, sorry, I'll never do it again. But it always repeated. It always repeated. So after, after borrowing all that, that extra money on the house, I was really, really anxious. And at the time, I was really early in my teaching career, so I was not making very much money. And so it really, really stressed me out. And he told me that uh, he thought I had an anxiety disorder and I needed to go on medication. And because I'm a very reflective and insightful person, I thought, well, I don't know, maybe I do, right? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think I do, but maybe, I don't know. Like I'm not a, I'm not a professional. And so I went and spoke to my doctor about it and I explained everything that happened. And she said, no, she said, the things you're telling me would make anybody anxious. I don't think you have an anxiety disorder, but I said, well, could I try some anxiety medication anyway? And she said, sure. And so I went on medication. And then the longstanding joke after that was that I took medication for him. So he didn't have to kind of thing. Did he ever use that against you and say that you are uh, like you, you take medication now, you are mentally ill and things like that? Yeah, yeah he would. Um, and then and it was also a bone of contention for me, right, that that I knew that this was due to his behavior. Um, but here I am taking medication, you know, and I, and I need to, or else I can't stay married to him. Right. So that's those, that's the choice I have. He continued to have these depressive episodes and as a pilot at the time, it's changed now, but at the time you weren't allowed to, you have to get a medical, uh, you have to get an aviation medical every year that says you're fit to fly. Um, and if he was diagnosed with depression, he would lose his medical. So what aviation doctors used to do, it's so counterintuitive, right? Because then what it does is it forces, it forces um, pilots to hide their depression, which leads to more problems. But what aviation doctors used to do was call it something else. They didn't call it depression. They called it um, adjustment disorder. So during the first few episodes of, of depression, he would go and see his aviation doctor. That was the only doctor he had. He didn't have a civilian doctor. Um, and his doctor would say, well, just take some time off, you know, to recover. Uh, you're adjusting to a situation or whatever. It's, it's adjustment disorder. So, and then he would go back to work. So then after we've been married a few years and this kept happening, right, these very severe, I said, Jonathan, you have to go and see a doctor about this, right? I don't, I don't want you to lose your medical, but lots of pilots have a civilian doctor. I want you to go and get a civilian doctor and, and look into getting an antidepressant. So he did that. He went on antidepressants, but he had to hide it from work because he would have lost his job. So he did this for probably 10 years. He was on this antidepressant. Um, under the table. And, it, and truth be told, it didn't do a whole lot to stop his depressive episodes. Um, he still, he still got them annually or, or, you know, when they were provoked by something. My thinking was always for my children. My, my thinking was always for our kids. And, um, my, my thought process was that if, because I've been questioning our marriage for a number of years, but I just didn't, I was looking for like some, some sign from above. I don't like, I don't know when you're like, when do you say enough is enough? When, when, how do people know when it's time to leave their marriage? I don't know. I don't know. But 
in my mind, I told myself that um, if and when I did leave the marriage, I wanted to be able to tell my children when they were older, when they were old enough to ask me what happened, I wanted to be able to tell them in all honesty that I had done everything I could to keep our family together. At this point, I think he knows, I, I think he knows that I am going to do everything in my power to keep my family together. Okay. So that's what's kind of driving you throughout yeah. here the whole entire yeah. time is, yeah. you know, you want to keep your family family together and he knows he can do whatever he wants and exploit that. Totally. He, he anything. Knows, okay. Anything right. he wants. He knows he's going to get away with it at all. I might threaten to leave, but I'm always going to come back. I'm never going to really leave, right? Um, and so, well, this goes on and on. And um, there are some Jekyll and Hyde episodes, you know, where, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of learn by his, he sort of teaches me through his behavior that I'm not allowed to, I'm not allowed to question anything he does. I'm not allowed to um, challenge anything he does. I'm not allowed to even tell him that I'm upset about anything because if I do, I, he turns it around, he flips it around and makes it about me. And somehow I'm, so he's the one who's done this awful thing, but somehow when it, when the situation ends, I'm the one who's crying in a mess on the floor because he's thrown all these accusations and sworn at me and yelled at me and intimidated me. And then like a switch, like someone had flicked a switch and turned him off. He would turn on a dime after turning, after being this like horribly abusive person who, who became more and more abusive, like the more upset I got, the more abusive he became. And sometimes he would, he would like a smirk would like a, like not a, it wasn't a smirk, but like an evil smile would arise on his face. Like he enjoyed what he was doing to me. And then boom, he would, he would walk through our door and I would hear him outside laughing and joking with neighbors. It was terrifying. So these things are still happening. You just named so many different things you're doing to conform to the situation. Yes, you are someone who stands up for themselves, but do you recognize yourself anymore? Are you saying to yourself at all, who am I? How did I get here? Like, why am I acting this way? Like, do you, are you having yeah. these questions? Do you have this, you know, cause sometimes, you know, you've been telling your story and I'm listening to you thinking to myself, you're, you're ping-ponging, you know, you're ping-ponging and reacting and, and going and going and going. And as far as self-reflection kind of goes on during this time, it not maybe a lot of it has gone on as far as examining really the nitty-gritty. You know these things, you know he's an asshole, and you know all of these other things. But are you a type of person, specifically at that point, who's extremely introspective into your own self to understand that you are not the same person? Um, so did, that make, gonna, did that make sense at all? 
Absolutely. I'm going to answer that in a couple of ways. So, so yes, I, in a way I recognized, I was beginning to recognize that I wasn't the same person that I was, but that was, that was in the context of, I think, and I think I'm, I'm assuming that this is probably common that anybody who is in an unhappy marriage is trying to figure out whether to stay or to leave. And so in, in looking into that area, you know, I'm looking for all these things. Well, does the, does the bad outweigh the good? If it does, then you should leave. Well, for me, it was mostly good. And when it was good, it was really good. But when it was bad, it was abusively horrible, right? Um, so that was one thing. So you're always kind of like weighing the two sides. And, and one of the other things I read was, does your, um, does your spouse make you a better person? And I thought, no, I don't. I hate the person. I hate the person. I'm not this person. I am, I am, I'm not argumentative. I'm not bitchy. I'm, I'm the easiest going, the most flexible person. Um, no, I'm, 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 he doesn't make me a better person, but then what do you do with that? You're still in the marriage. So, I mean, I had a, I had a sense of it, but I think moreover, I was looking, I was trying to figure out what was going on with him. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology and because he had this history, this family history of, of um, mental illness, I was really trying to understand. And because there's all this cognitive dissonance, right? So he loves me. He, he, he made me feel so loved when I met him. Um, I felt like I won the lottery. And, and all of a sudden, his love for me seems to have turned into disdain. And I don't know why. And he's really awful to me. Um, he tells me that he loves me, but he treats me terribly. So there's this cognitive dissonance. So what do you do? You either um, accept, yes, he's treating me like shit, and you get out of the marriage, or you want to stay in the marriage and keep your family together. So then you need to find something that makes sense to you, that lets you do that, right? So with my psych background and with his history of mental illness and, and the family history of mental illness, I was looking... I was looking for reasons. Like I was, I was trying to understand why he did the things he did. And so at some point, um, a friend of mine who's a doctor was listening to a radio program about adult ADHD. And she, she phoned me and said, you need to turn on this radio show. I want you to listen to it. I think Jonathan has ADHD. You know, he, there's this, there's this, they say one of the big signs of adult ADHD is people who are years behind on their taxes. Like he was like a decade behind on his taxes. So I listen to the show and I, and I think maybe, you know, and so then I'm, I'm a researcher and I'm analytical and, and I read and I read and I'm thinking, well, that would explain this, that this would explain why he leaves the room when I'm in the middle of a conversation with him or why he leaves the house, or why he picks up a call when I'm talking to him. This is why he makes agreements with me, but then breaks them because he's like, it explained a lot of it. And so I brought it to his attention and he agreed to broach the topic with his aviation doctor. And the aviation doctor said, well, I've known you for a long time, Jonathan, and I don't think you have ADHD. 
and I said, what, he knows you in this, in, in this one little sphere. How would he know? Like, how would he know you better than, than your spouse who lives with you day in and day out and has for, you know, years and years now. So he, he agreed to go get tested, but, um, kept making excuses for not getting tested. Oh, I can't get, he wanted to see the specific doctor, uh, a psychiatrist named Dr. Tim Bilkey, who is, who is this like, you know, um, esteemed expert in ADHD in Canada. And uh, he didn't, he wouldn't see anybody else. So again, there's this like this different narratives, right? Like this was this, his pattern is that he tells, he tells one per like depending on, depending on what he needs that person for, that will shape the narrative that my ex-husband tells them. So um, he kept telling me that he would, he was insistent on seeing only Dr. Bilkey because that was the psychiatrist that his doctor had recommended. Um, but he, whenever I asked him about it, he would say, oh, there's a long waiting list. I can't get in. I can't get in. And it, this went on and on and on. Until finally I called and I got him an appointment like the next day. So with this assessment, it was, it was three sessions. Uh, the first session I went with him and gave, uh, you know, my perspective on life at home with him. The second session, Jonathan went on his own. And then the third session, each session was, I don't remember, an hour and a half to two hours, maybe something like that. And the third session, uh, he had the diagnosis, but uh, he had the diagnosis ready, um, but he just kind of spoke to us. So there was no assessment done. So he was given, so my ex-husband was given a negative diagnosis for ADHD. He didn't get it. But years later, um, after we separated, so like within the last two years, my ex-husband finally admitted to me that he had lied during the assessment because he wanted a negative diagnosis. Um, so I came out of that and I think even, even while we were still in the psychiatrist's office, I said, well, I'm done. I'm not, I, I'm out. I'm not, I'm not, I can't be married to you anymore because up until this point I had been, this was like, the answer I've, I've been looking for, right? Like maybe if he gets a diagnosis, um, we can get him some treatment to manage this behavior and I can keep my family together, right? So I was, I, it became my mantra to say to my ex-husband, I hope you have ADHD because if you don't, you're just an asshole. So when he got the negative diagnosis, I was like, well, all my eggs were in this basket I'm done. I can't, I'm not doing this. Like this is, I can't put up with this behavior anymore, but I went back, <laughs> I went back again because my train of thought was okay. I still, I, I haven't done enough for my, for my children. I, there's still more I could do. And so I, all my eggs had been in this basket that he had ADHD. Uh, he doesn't have ADHD. Um, that's a new situation. I, I think I can try to deal with that. Right. And so he's got these ADHD behaviors 
and and maybe maybe he has ADHD, but he's so low on the spectrum that he didn't get the diagnosis. And so I went back with that explanation. And after that, uh, the diagnosis of ADHD, my ex-husband used when it benefited him, but when it didn't, he didn't have it. So sometimes, oh, oh, you know, I have ADHD. Oh, that's my ADHD. If it, if it, if it excused his behavior in some way or justified his behavior, he had it. But if it was embarrassing to him and, um, made him look bad, he didn't have it. So again, it like the narrative changed depending on who he was talking to. That must've been maddening. Oh, so maddening. My God. So frustrating. And we read, um, there's this book called the ADHD effect on marriage by Melissa Orlov. And I bought that book and I, I read it and it was like, it was as though that book was written about us. It was unbelievably accurate. Like it was so um, in sync with our lives. In fact, one of the first couples that she talks about in the book, the husband is a pilot and the wife is a teacher. Like it was, it was bizarre how similar. And I actually got him to read the book, which is unusual because of his ADHD or whatever. He rarely reads a whole book. He only ever reads newspaper articles. He, he never reads anything long. But he did read this book, and he agreed. He, he thought it was eerie as well. It was so similar to us. But he didn't have the diagnosis. And so. we're not grilling anyone here with who has ADHD. Absolutely everyone. not. Absolutely no. not. We're talking no. about someone who's not taking responsibility for their Absolutely. own Absolutely. issues and, and, and letting their own issues run rampant on a family in a very selfish, manipulative way. Because we're talking about a lot of manipulation tactics yes, going on yes, here. Yes, yes, you know, that's right. ADHD doesn't make you a, a manipulative person. No, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And in fact, uh, if, uh, and I'm saying if, because who knows? If, you, if Who knows which of his diagnoses are accurate and which are not? But if he has ADHD, and when I thought he had ADHD, again, it wasn't, I, I didn't think of it as any sort of a negative thing. Again, I said it's the same as being born with blue eyes or brown eyes or blonde hair. It's, you know, it is as, and it, it's not a deficiency. It's just a different um, way of your brain working. And in a lot of cases, it's a really great thing. I do genuinely believe he has ADHD um, in, a, in addition to NPD. So he, he continued to have these depressive episodes you know, time and time again, and every time I would help him through it, I would set him up with a therapist, I would set him up with supports, and he would never follow through. And every time, or the last few times, I started to say to him, probably the last two depressive episodes, I said to him, listen, you have to do something about this. I keep setting you up with these with, with treatments and you don't follow through. I can only do so much. Um, I can lead you to, I can lead you to water, but I can't make you drink. Um, but this is really hard on me and it's really hard on our children. And it's something that you can do something about, but you keep choosing not to, you keep choosing to not take responsibility and you keep choosing to, 
um, ignore the impact that it has on the, on us, on the people around us. So I think that happened once and then it happened, uh, again, and I helped him through it because I'm empathic and, and I, and I love him and I love him. I genuinely loved him. So the financial abuse continued, right? We, um, we went on a, he convinced me to go on a cruise. I get really motion sick. So I was a bit concerned about it, but it ended up being fine. What happens when you go on a cruise is, uh, a credit card goes on file for any charges that go on. So he had free reign to spend money and it went on my credit card. So he, and it was already a very expensive, um, thing we were doing, like, and uh, he decided he went into the gift shop and he saw a thousand dollar watch that he wanted to buy. And I said, absolutely not. We can't afford this. This cruise is costing a fortune. Uh, we already don't have you're already going to have to work a bunch of overtime to, to pay for it. Uh, absolutely not. OK, OK. So then I um, we go to dinner one night and he pulls out a gift for me. And he's bought me a diamond necklace and he makes a big production about it. Um, I, I've never bought you jewelry. I haven't bought, I haven't bought you a nice piece of jewelry since we got married. Um, I, I just really wanted to get this for you. Oh, that's really sweet. That's really lovely. He's, you know, it's still on my credit card, but at least the, the thought is nice or whatever. I go back to the room and all your charges are on the, on the TV. And I look down the charges and I see, um, for this necklace. And then I see see the thousand dollar watch. So he's emotionally manipulated me by giving me this, by buying me a $1,500 diamond necklace to justify him going against my wishes to buy himself a thousand dollar watch. So shit hits the fan. I'm angry, whatever, blah, 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 deal with it. I'm so used to it by this point. We go on a cruise again the next year. He does the same fucking thing puts a whole bunch of charges on my car. You can buy like these cruise next um, deposits where you buy a, I don't know, you buy, you, you buy a future deposit for $250 and then you get a hundred dollars worth of credit on your cruise on the current cruise or something. So he, he spends like $2,500 on my credit card and he buys all this crap from the gift store again. Like, and I'm just like, I'm like, Oh my God. What, like, how do you keep doing the same thing? Like, how do you keep repeating exactly the same thing over and over again and not learning from it? Like, what the hell is going on here? Fine. Swept it under the rug. Like I always do. So then the beginning of the end was he had a very serious depressive episode, January, February of 2019. He gets in his head that he wants to buy a luxury RV for uh, $140,000. I said, there is no way you're buying a $140,000 RV. You keep wanting these new things and then you don't take care of them. Like there had been other big purchases over the year that he had to have, had to have, had to have, got them and then didn't take care of them. So then they just fall into a state of disrepair. I said, absolutely not. You've got this 
expensive item that's rotting and not taken care of. You've got this item. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So he rents the RV without telling me on my credit card. He just shows up one day at home with this RV, with this luxury RV. And I am furious, furious. Tells me he's rented it. I'm still pissed off. Where did you get the money from? I know it's on my credit card, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I'm so angry. I have to leave the house. So I go to a local restaurant. I have a drink. I calm down. And all of a sudden I'm concerned because he lies to me so much of the time. I'm, I'm concerned that he's actually bought it and just told me he rented it because he saw how angry I was. So I called his middle sister and um, she doesn't know anything about it. So I'm pretty sure that he's just rented it. So I'm, I'm furious about it. And I go back and, and I, I express that I'm angry that he rented this RV and he loses it on me and, and tells me I'm ungrateful because he went to the trouble of renting this RV for me because he knew I would never go up and look at it. And I said, of course I wouldn't go and look at it because I told you we weren't getting it. So I'm furious, 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 but he's rented it for a few days. And, and so he disappears from our house for a few days as he's driving around showing like, cause he likes to make a big show and he really prides himself on being kind of eccentric. So he's driving this RV all over the place and then eventually comes home. So then uh, over the course of two separate weekends, we have some pretty serious conversations about his impulsivity and his spending habits. And, um, he really wants me to take a year off of teaching the following year because I've had a couple of extremely stressful years and I would very much like to do it. But I said to him, but I can't like, if, if you don't get your spending under control, I can't afford to, because it would have to be an unpaid lease. No, I promise. I promise. I promise. So over the course of two weekends, he, he promised me with like the greatest sincerity that he would get this under control. He wasn't going to do this anymore. And he really wanted me to take a year off. So I filled out the paperwork. I sub submitted my application. As soon as I had done that, he comes clean and tells me that behind my back, he bought the RV. So over these two weekends, he had been lying like to my face through his teeth because he had already bought the RV. Um, so it took me, so I, I was so used to it at this point. I didn't even get angry. I was just like, oh, here we go again. So then it hits me and I'm going like, I go to work and then, and then it hits me and I start to panic and I had to take a week off work because the panic hit me. And I was like, where did he get the money for this? Where did it all come from? So then I start going through, um, our bank accounts and I'm doing like forensic banking and trying to figure out where he got the money for the rental, where he got the money. So he's gone to the bank and we have a joint line of credit. He's, he's withdrawn $40,000 from our joint line of credit secured against our house. So I'm liable for that. And then he's taken out a high interest private loan uh, with the RV company for $100,000. So he's got this. So now we've got this fucking mammoth RV with like a fireplace and two bathrooms and three TVs. Like it's so stupid. One of the results of that was that we couldn't deliver on Christmas presents we'd given the boys because that Christmas we just we decided that we weren't rather than giving them material things, we were going to give them experiences. So we gave them like a lot of a lot of um, 
gift certificates for like a climbing program and a VR room and, you know, pottery painting and things like that. And, and now we could barely pay our bills and we were going to lose my income for a year. Right. So that was in February of 2019. We, he, he's very, he's very, um, he pretends to be very remorseful uh, initially, but then the jokes come out that show he's not really remorseful. He was just pretending, right? So then he's joking about this RV that he bought or that I'm, you know, oh, she's pissed off about the RV and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so there are these little comments and stuff, but we make it through the, um, the spring and the summer. So, um, well, around Christmas, I've been in this depressive episode, and which is so depressing for uh, myself and our children as well. And I wanted, I needed something to look forward to. So I booked a cruise for um, my children and I. Uh, but I, then I thought, well, I'll, I'll add Jonathan to the booking as well, because hopefully by then he'll, he'll be through the depression and he'll be able to join us. So, so I had this cruise to look forward to. And then when the cruise, right around the time the cruise was coming up, he went into, um, I, didn't, I didn't recognize it until after the fact, but he went into a manic period where he, um, what happens, he, so he was diagnosed with bipolar, I think it's two disorder, where you suffer depression and you suffer hypomania, which is not as extreme as a full-on mania. It's less distinguishable. Um, and especially with Jonathan, because he was, um, a little bit on the hyper uh, eccentric side. Anyway, it was it was hard harder to distinguish. Maybe anyway. So he went into this hypomanic period and started to, you know, he gets these grandiose ideas where um, he doesn't think them through. He just does them, and um, there isn't necessarily any any logic to it. So a friend of ours had suggested this great idea because we had this stupid RV. Um, this friend had an idea of, of driving the RV down to Florida um, and positioning it in a trailer park home, some kind of a park close to the airport, and renting it out like an Airbnb. And it was actually a very good idea to help recoup some of the cost, right, to cover the, um, the loan payments. But it wasn't thought out. It was a good idea, but it wasn't thought out and it needed much more organizing. And that's not Jonathan's forte. It's very much mine. And so just as we were getting ready to go on this cruise, he, he goes off on this idea about positioning this RV and he won't let it go. And I said, listen, this is not going to happen. There's not, there are no linens in it. You don't have a spot, like nothing is organ. There are no dishes in it. Like there is, there's so, who's going to clean it? Like it was, it just wasn't thought out. And I said, you know, maybe when we come back from our cruise, we can look into it and we can plan something out, but not yet. But he wouldn't let it go. He's like a dog with a bone. So the night before our, and so then he'd acquiesced and he said, oh, you're, you're right, you're right. But then it was the night before we were supposed to leave for our cruise and we were driving down to New Orleans, which is a 24 hour drive. And, but we would share the driving. And so as usual, I do the lion's share of work. I get myself ready and the kids and, and stuff, and I'm packing and all of this. And um, 
leaves the house, and I assume he's just running errands, picking up things he needs for the cruise, toiletries and things. Um, so at, at around dinner time, I text him and I say, can you pick up a pizza for the kids? You know, I'm still packing. I still have a lot of work to do. Could you grab a, could you bring a pizza home? Sure, sure. And then an hour passes and still no sign of him or pizza or anything. And uh, I text him again. How's like, are you coming home with that pizza? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Soon, soon, soon. And this light bulb goes off in my head because I have so much experience with him that I know how his mind works. So instantly I know exactly what he's doing. I know he's driven an hour. So here we are rushing to get ready for this cruise. It's, it's um, right before Christmas. So I'm also rushing around so that my, our, our children can have a Christmas celebration. Um, and uh, he's driven an hour away to pick up the RV and he is driving it around Toronto He's texting friends saying, hey, if I position this RV down in Florida, would you be interested in renting it? Because he's thinking if he can get enough people to rent it and get deposits that, of course, I'm going to agree to it. So I text him and I say, if you're planning to come home with that RV, don't come home at all. Because I had everything I had parking like I had parking arranged, booked, paid for. Um, I had the drive down to New Orleans planned. We were going to do the cruise. We were going to come back and we were going to show the boys around New Orleans, you know, and narrow streets. We weren't going to drive an RV, right? It was ridiculous. And so he shows up at the door with the RV, as I just said not to. He shows up at the door and we have a glass window in our door. And I just said, no. And I gave him a thumb and told him to get lost. <laughs> and so he left. And now I'm in a panic because I was planning on splitting up this 24-hour drive. And now I'm doing it on my own. And I still have to stay up like all night packing. So what am I going to do? So I um, get up the next morning knowing that this is the deal. And uh, he's out there in the RV. He's back. He's parked and we live at a dead end street. So he's got the RV. I see the RV parked out front and um, I hide out in the kitchen so that he won't see me because it's the glass door. And um, at a certain point, he after after some time has passed, he must have texted our eldest child and and um, asked for the uh, inside lock to be opened so Jonathan could get in. So I met them at the door and I said, no, don't open the door, go back upstairs. So I sent our, our eldest child back upstairs. And um, uh, Jonathan flew into a rage and started yelling at me and telling me that he, oh, he had two, two coffees, right? So he was just, and this is what he does. Like, he's just pretending like nothing was wrong. Nothing was out of the ordinary. And we were just going to hop in the RV and drive to New Orleans like he planned. Um, but when I won't let him in the house, he loses it. And he tells me if I don't let him in, he's going to break the glass and the door and he's, you know, being threatening. And I just say, listen, I'm not going to let you ruin another Christmas for the children. And I'm not going to argue with you. You made your decision. I told you that if you wanted to position the RV in Florida, that you could do that. 
but we're taking the car to New Orleans and catching the cruise. So you go do your thing like you want to, and, and we're going to proceed as planned. And so then I went back into the kitchen so that he couldn't physically, you know, intimidate me. But we had like a little texting conversation and um, his anger that because the anger didn't work, then he, he changes tactics and suddenly he's all sweet and, oh, honey, that drive is too long for you. Like you can, you're tired. I can do the first leg of the drive and you can sleep and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I, I, like, I just kept my boundaries up and said, no, like I told you what was going to happen. I'm not doing this with you anymore. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not angry, not angry, but I, I told you that if you didn't manage your behavior, that, that I'm out of here. And, and so I'm out of here. And, uh, he sat out there. I think he was outside for seven hours. He just sat there. So, so there was a point at which I was, I was scared and I called the police, um, the non-emergency line. Um, but the operator that answered my phone, when I, when I told her what was going on, she was, she was, um, uh, patronizing and made me feel like I was overreacting. So I hung up the phone. In retrospect, I should have held my own and said no, I, and, and I should have had them send over a police officer. But, you know, problems with our legal system and emotional abuse and whatever. Uh, so we went ahead on the cruise. The boys and I left, and I drove the whole way. And um, the second night, so we did two overnights on the way. And the second night, I get this text. We just we just pull into our hotel. It's after midnight. We're like in Mississippi somewhere. And I get this text that says, hi, just checked into a hotel in New Orleans. I'm right by the cruise port. They're expecting you. Like nothing had happened. It was so terrifying. And so I texted back and I said, we're not even in New Orleans. We, we just checked into our hotel. And I don't know what you're doing here. You were supposed to be positioning the RV in Florida, you're not even on the cruise booking anymore. Like you can't even join us. Um, because before I'd left Toronto, I had him removed for fear that he would do something like this, that he would just show up because he's so crazy. So uh, that was the end. So we went on the cruise. Um, he apparently stood across the street and watched us get on to the ship. Um, yeah. And then, and then he putzed around. So then we, we were separated and then there was a whole other, uh, the, the abuse became exponentially worse. We, so we've been separated for two years, uh, because he had the RV, he lived in the RV. So oh, when we it came, came in back, handy, came in handy. Well, <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, thank God he bought it. So we, we got back from the cruise, the boys and I got back from the cruise and uh, he continued to come and go as he pleased. Like, and, like so he'd, he'd be gone in the RV. He was living in the RV. But then I would wake up one morning and he'd be downstairs making the boys breakfast, you know. And then he'd disappear for a couple of weeks and then he might appear again. Like he was just kind of in and out. So you, you, really, you really had a 17-year-old child, yes, teenager. I did, yeah. Continuously doing all these things and... Except- Except a seventeen-year-old with access to uh, cre- credit, yeah, access to credit. So yeah. you go through, I guess, the separation process, uh, the divorce process, and uh, you know he's 
still doing whatever he wants, thinking he can do whatever he wants. He has this behavior pattern where, you know, he can rage, he can do this, he can have tantrums, and then, boom, split second later, it's like nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure his memory is very selective as far as that never happened, this never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. This person's, this is a, you're talking my this person's a liar. Like, I've never done that type of stuff. So the process of the divorce and this type of, crazy making behavior not just in your marriage but now within the divorce aspect of everything how does it affect you and how does it affect your children uh so 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 post-separation there were there were some hoovering attempts um that i didn't accept and um but you know I didn't realize I didn't realize his personality disorder at the time, and so I I really did hope that we could have an amicable um, co-parenting relationship. You know, I, I wasn't angry; like I genuinely wasn't angry, and I and I made that very clear to him. I said, "I'm not I'm not angry with you. I just can't live this way anymore." You know, I'm I'm in my fifties. I'm closer to retirement than I am to the beginning of my career, and you just took out this loan that would take me a decade to pay back. Right. Like, and, and we're married. So I'm liable for that. Like, you don't seem to understand the impact and I, and I just can't do it anymore. Like it was, but he, um, and I, and I had told him this would happen. So it shouldn't have been a surprise. Right. But I, he, it was as though he was just furious with me that I said enough and, and, and that I left. And so the, the behavior became exponentially worse. Um, he went, he really went downhill and his, and his behavior became really, really crazy. So, um, you know, there's been withholding money that hurts my children, you know, not paying child support that he's, he's using my children to punish me a lot of, a lot of the time, which is unfair. Um, sometimes they're subjected uh, to being physically present when he's when he's doing intimidating things or abusive things. When he was supposed to be supervising our children and have them at his house, he hired a locksmith to uh, grind the lock off of my house so that he could move into my house with our children. Um, so they, you know, they're witness to that. He, he got a neighbor who is also a friend of mine. This is how manipulative he is. Um, he got a, a, a friend, a neighbor of ours, to help him break into my house through a second floor window. He dumped a whole bunch of garbage up at our cottage um, that I had to clean up and, and dispose of. Um, lots of intimidation, lots of stalking behavior. And, and the unfortunate thing is there's very little, um, there was very little I could do about it. I, you know, I have a lawyer and she said restraining order. she just kept saying to me, restraining orders are really hard to get in family court. You know, some stuff that my kids are, that our kids are witness to, some that they're not witness to, but, but certainly they're affected because it affects me. And if, if I'm preoccupied with, with my own safety, then I'm not, I, I can't be completely present for them. 
So as far as you go, how are you doing in your healing process? Have you had a chance to deal with any of this now? And, um, you know, kind of going forward, um, you know, what I guess is your, your plan to continue to deal with this or like, are you dealing with trauma? Yeah. So, so I have, I feel like, so after, after two years, I feel like I'm, I'm finally back at some sort of a baseline where I can start, where I feel sane enough and healthy enough that I can start rebuilding my life. Like I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have a, a career, um, and a pension, um, some, you know, some real estate. I, I'm not in a bad position comparatively, right. To a lot of women who are, who are totally dependent on their husbands financially. Um, huge, huge learning process for me. So I, I didn't, I didn't find out that he was a narcissist until about a year after we'd separated. And it was just luck. I, I hooked up with a new therapist and she identified, it wasn't even our first session. It was just like a meet and greet over the telephone. And after talking to her for 20 minutes, she identified him. And I was in complete shock because, well, one, I have a degree in psychology. So you'd think that I would have some idea. I, I'm pretty educated. I'm pretty aware of these things. And I, and I didn't see it at all. I was aware of narcissism, but I had only ever um, known about the grandiose. So here is my ex-husband who's uh, funny and charming and, and self-deprecating. How could he be a narcissist? And I start reading about the different kinds of narcissism, the different forms. And I, and he's like a textbook, uh, you know, covert, um, narcissist. He's more, he's not, not, he's somewhat vulnerable, but not in all ways. Cause I mean, I know different people use different, different, um, ways of describing it. So once I found that out, that was a huge shock, but, but I learned as much as I could about, you know, I just immersed myself. I think that happens with everybody who finds out that, that they have a narcissist in their life when it's revealed to them, you become obsessive. And I, and I watched, um, YouTube videos and I, like every spare moment, YouTube videos. And I bought every book I could find and, and, you know, I bought them rather than borrow them from the library because I, I use them to reference and, and make notes in. And I listened to podcasts and, and, um, you know, I learned so much about it. So that was, that was my, my starting point. Um, I went to therapy to talk things out. Um, I, the therapist who told me he was a narcissist, she focuses on, she does, she, her, the focus of her practice is tapping. I'm a, like a really sensible person. And I've always thought it was kind of hokey, but it, it genuinely worked <laughs> like it. I don't know. It, there, there's a mindfulness component to it. And then I think there's also an acupressure kind of thing, but it really, so that really helped me deal with, um, you know, panic and, and anxiety because, because he was constantly baiting me and, and provoking, you know, post separation, he was, he was constantly doing things to provoke me and intimidate me and, and bait me and scare me. Um, and so that helps manage that. But then I found a second therapist to do talk therapy just to, you know, verbal diarrhea and get it all out. So that was helpful. I'm at a point now. So that's, that's been for about a year. 
And I'm at a point now where I am now looking inward at the physical manifestations of the, of the trauma and, and referring back to, we were talking earlier about one of your early, earlier episodes um, with Louise, who was an, an amazing woman. And, and just, so talk- everyone, just so everyone knows, we were talking about oh. it before the show began. Yes, before the show, before the show. And uh, she talked about, you know, oh, it was really interesting because I was listening to that episode in my car on the way to my massage therapist. So I went in for my massage therapist and she's very holistic and, and wonderful. I love her. And she, and I was talking to her about body armoring. So that was the first I had ever heard of it. So, so I guess the next stage of my healing was understanding the physical manifestations and recognizing the, the body armoring in, in myself and that I was constantly, no wonder my back always hurt and no wonder, you know, like, because I was always tense because I was always in fight, flight, or freeze mode because in, in my marriage and, and post-separation, I was just always waiting for the shit to hit the fan. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop, right? My, my analogy for, for, um, to describe my, my marriage to Jonathan was I would, I would say it's like, it's like I'm just trying to get from here to the door, but Jonathan is always throwing marbles in my path. That's, that's what it was like. Like the simplest things became so substantial and so insurmountable. And so, so now I've, I've taken a break from therapy. I'm working more on physical things, the body armoring, and I'm, I'm starting to go to the gym more and, and get more regular um, chiropractics and, and massage therapy so that I feel kind of normal again, physically. Um, uh, yeah. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for people listening, what would it be? I think, I think what I would say, it's, it's hard to talk to people who are in the situation. I think, I think my advice to everyone is, is to get the message out there and, and disseminate as much information as you can, whether people believe you or not. If, if this information gets out there and, and people hear that this is a real thing and that this really happens, they're going to be more likely to believe that friend who comes to them with that unbelievable story about Mr. Wonderful and says, yeah, he's not like that at home. Because I think, you know, I was so angry when I found out that I was in, first of all, that I was in a, nar- that I was in a relationship with a narcissist. That was a shock. And then it was a real... Um, it was a real blow when I like totally realized that I had been in an abusive relationship. Like I am the last person you would ever imagine would, would be in an abusive relationship. I, I, I come from a really supportive family. I'm, I'm, I'm very reflective. I'm, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm a researcher and I'm analytical and I talk about things like it, like, it's unbelievable. I mean, if, if, if I could find myself in, in a relationship like this and have no idea, then, you know, it could happen to anybody. Well, Soleil, thank you for being here today and being on the show. You did a great job. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. 
and you're going to help a lot of people. So a big thank you from me. And now for some announcements that we do here at the end of the show. You know, so if you want to be on our show, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com and fill out the guest form at the top of the page. There's a button that says guest form. Click on that button and away you will go from there. There's a guest form to fill out or you can read all the instructions and send us an email. And then other thing at NarcissistApocalypse.com is we have our own support forums now. So at the top of the page, there's a button that says support group. Click on that button. It takes you to our very own safe social network. We have a community of people on there that are posting in our forums. We have integrated Zoom support meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night. And in the new year, we will be adding an afternoon group as well for the people who are maybe uh, are at home or possibly in Europe. And we also have on there, uh, you know, closure ceremonies and things like that. So if you want more support, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says support group. Press that button and we will see you there. Also, if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you or someone you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because DomesticShelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. So you can also connect with local resources like shelters and find ways to heal and move forward. So please do go to DomesticShelters.org to access this free resource. And also, what will be happening starting in January, starting in the new year, we will be having a new sponsor of our show, and that sponsor is Bombas. And Bombas, uh, they make socks, and they make underwear, and they make t-shirts. But the big thing with Bombas is that for every pair you buy, they donate a pair to a homeless shelter. And we're really happy to have Bombas as our sponsor because, as you know, a leading cause of women who become homeless is because of domestic violence. So we're really happy and proud to have them as our sponsor starting in January. And we'll be rolling out you know, promo codes and things like that, I think starting on next week's episode. So uh, uh, thank you to Bombas for being part of our show. And we're excited. My socks are uh, on the way. My socks and underwear are on the way. And I'm really excited about it. I got to pick them out. And I'm getting some Sesame Street socks, everyone. So a big thank you to Bombas. And you know, also a big thank you to Soleil for being our guest this week. She did a fantastic job. And uh, you know, now from Soleil and myself, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>